0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: Biden then, his opinion was, and he's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that you've got to get the approval of Congress if you want to attack Iran. And the overtone, therefore, is if you don't get the approval of Congress before attacking Iran, then... This leads to a constitutional crisis, and I think that is that is now where everything is pointing. We've got the, the threat of what is, in fact, the Third World War. We've got Bush making these statements, right? He had an interview this past Sunday where he said, it's clear the Congress will try to stop me, but I have made my decision and we're going to go forward. And when he says this, I think you have to assume that he means not just this this minor tactical tinkering you know, on the streets of Baghdad or or other minor changes, but the big change, in other words, the wider war. The, the mentality of these people would seem to be that of a, uh, a hysterical flight
0: forward. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Widening the War. Webster Tarpley is an author, historian, investigative journalist, and lecturer. In 1992, he co-authored George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, which still stands as the only comprehensive and critical account of the former president and his family network. This study has become an underground classic. Tarpley is also author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Surviving the Cataclysm, a study of the world financial crisis, and Against Oligarchy, a collection of essays and speeches from the years 1970 to 1996. Webster Tarpley, welcome.
1: Thank you so much.
0: President Bush's long-awaited address to the nation on U.S. policy in Iraq on January 10, 2007, the deteriorating situation there, what did you think of his speech? I considered it
1: to be a very ominous sign in, in many ways. I think after this speech, it's clear we're heading, first of all, into a, a tremendous constitutional crisis, with a real threat to the current system of government in this country, and at the same time, we're also headed into a into a tremendous military crisis, which is uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, you can see that the dream world into which uh, Bush and the neocon fascist madmen, I have to call them, have have retreated, uh, means that they have taken the results of the November election and the obvious crisis of their regime and the collapse of their support and turned that into a mandate, not just for an escalation in Iraq, but for a wider war, including hostilities against Iran, possibly Syria. And in the meantime, they've added Somalia, just as an extra uh, element uh, along the way. Um, I think there's a, there's a very ominous comparison that we have to make to, to Hitler and, and Hitler's mode of thinking and reacting to outside events. I, I don't see any way around that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make easy rhetorical points, but I think there really is a very important substantive uh, comparison. So on the one side, I think that the main new element in the speech is the threats to Syria and Iran delivered in such a an important uh, moment. The actual content of the so-called new policy is trivial. These are minor tactical changes in the midst of, of the current uh, uh, stay the course uh, victory and, and all the rest of it. So there were really very minor rhetorical changes, some very minor tactical changes. These will not make uh, any difference. I'd probably the most important rhetorical change is the, the growing hysterical obsession with the city of Baghdad, and what goes on there. Um, And the idea now that uh, we're beginning to see measures that are coherent with a wider war involving Iran, and maybe I should just go through those so everybody's up to date. Um, In the same moment that Bush made these threats to Iran and Syria in his uh, speech on, uh, well, last Wednesday, uh, the, the U.S. has already got one... Uh, aircraft carrier battle group in the area of the Arabian Sea and the Persian Arabian Gulf. That's the Eisenhower Group. Uh, in addition to the twenty thousand or twenty-one thousand uh, GIs that Bush is sending, additionally, he's also sending the USS Stennis and its battle group. And this was announced uh, in the first days of the new year, uh, and and it was explicitly presented as a means to intimidate Iran by the threat of, of an attack uh, with these planes. You've also got the sending of at least one Patriot missile battalion. This is a rather unreliable U.S. Um, uh, anti-missile missile or missile defense uh, capability it can be used against old-fashioned scud missiles and things of this sort against anything modern it would not be uh, very effective at all but they've sent at least one of those and they don't exactly say where that's going perhaps it's to saudi arabia to try to pacify the saudi leadership um, in addition then to what the u.s. is doing in terms of these capabilities you've also got a series of provocations against iran on the ground before bush's speech had occurred the u.s. was already uh, engaged in rounding up iranians they were uh, arresting iranians they had a group of four or five iranians who apparently had diplomatic credentials and diplomatic passports the u.s. insisted on arresting them and holding them the maliki government was not happy with that and then as a separate incident just in the in the hours right after bush's speech there was a, a completely illegal action by the U.S. against what appears to be a consulate, legally constituted as as far as these things go, by the Iranian government in the Kurdish area in the north of Iraq, which of course is to all intents and purposes already an independent state, and the Kurds uh, seem to indicate that this was a consulate that they were in the process of setting up with these Iranians. Now, the consulate one is a, is a very serious matter because this is governed by an international convention embassies and consulates have extraterritorial privileges diplomatic immunity you're not allowed to barge in there with with police and troops you're not allowed to arrest these people if you do it you're violating international law and you're actually committing an act of war and those those are the kinds of insults to the iranian flag that could could lead to conflict now i think the iranian government is is well aware that the U.S. Is, is trying to sucker them into some uh, ill-considered rash counterattack. That would be Cheney's dream in, in all this. So I don't think they'll respond to it, but these are very, very serious matters.
0: Webster, are the Russians watching these maneuvers in the Gulf with these ships?
1: Yes, well, that, that would be one of, the, one of the things that we can report right now. Uh, a distinguished uh, Russian admiral, I think he's the retired commander of the Black Sea Fleet, Admiral Bolton, says that according to Russian Federation intelligence, the United States has four nuclear submarines that are operating inside the Gulf. Uh, they are proceeding submerged. They sometimes come up to periscope depth and look around with the periscope. They have other ways, of course, of knowing what's going on above them. He says these are a menace to navigation, but above all, they indicate that the U.S. uh, has retained the active option of a sneak missile attack against Iran, because these are the the submarines that could fire two things, theoretically, right? They could fire uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads. That's one of the things they have. Or they could fire cruise missiles with nuclear warheads. Those are a little bit slower. And then you have cruise missiles with conventional warheads, so they 're all in the Gulf, and other people see it. The Russian intelligence sees it. Uh, Russia is of course a superpower with vital interests in that area and here 's Admiral Bolton essentially telling the world that this capability is there. It had been known that something of this sort was going on from the time uh oh a month or two ago. A U.S. uh, nuclear submarine was proceeding, submerged through the Straits of Hormuz, the most narrow of this very narrow and rather shallow sea, and collided with a Japanese tanker and and came out of this rather damaged. So that would be the naval part of it. Then around this, uh, in terms of current events uh, concerning the uh, air uh, tensions, let's say, The Sunday Times reported that the Israeli Air Force is now in active preparations for a sneak attack on Iran. And according to the Sunday Times, the Israeli Air Force is practicing. They take off from Israel. They fly to the other end of the Mediterranean, to Gibraltar. Right? It's, uh, what, 2,000 miles, and then they fly back. So they make this 2,000-mile trip. And that is their practice. They estimate that the trip to Gibraltar and back is about the same as the trip to Tehran and back. This, of course, raises interesting questions. How would they get to Iran? Would they fly over Turkey? Would Turkey allow that, or would Turkey start shooting? If they fly over Saudi Arabia, would Saudi Arabia allow it? Uh, Saudi Arabia might allow it, but the fact that they've allowed it might then turn into a cause celebre, leading to the overthrow, finally, of this uh, corrupt uh, Saudi monarchy for for collusion in this case, with the Israelis attacking a Muslim state, or the other opportunity the Israelis could fly over Jordan and then over Iraq, but of course, if they fly over Iraq, it means that they 're getting not just a green light but active assistance from from the United States so that 's another one and then we have the ing group this is a, uh, a very important european bank it 's based in Holland, but they bought up uh, um, Barings Bank, a decade or so ago. The ING Bank has a newsletter, and they say that uh, their sources indicate that the Israelis will attack Iran in February to March. And in terms of the timing, I would just add one other thing as I get my trusty farmer's almanac here. You have to remember that the preferred time for any attack involving the U.S., the British, and the Israelis, in other words, this sort of airborne blitzkrieg model that the Anglo-Americans and their uh, Israeli uh, friends would, would uh, take up, is the new moon, right? the dark of the moon, because that's when their air assets can, can uh, most easily be invisible, right? stealth bombers and so forth. But if you have a nice, big, bright full moon, you're able to see them. So the, uh, the new moon is the 18th of January. Uh, the 17th of February, a couple of days before Ash Wednesday, which might be a real, a real letdown if the war begins then, or the 18th of March, uh, right before the beginning of springtime. And that will be a, uh, well, I don't know, a silent spring, if, if that's what they decide to do. So this is also very menacing. Now, the Israeli government says, no, it's not true, we don't do this. The Iranian government has said, uh, if you do dare attack us, you will regret it very swiftly. And I think there's there's a great deal of reason to take that seriously. Let's also look at a couple of personnel changes in the U.S., right, the sort of uh, purge that's going on, a sort of a slow-motion purge of the Bush regime. Uh, the new theater commander of Central Command is Admiral Fallon, who is not a an Army general or Marine Corps general. He's not a land warfare man. But he's a carrier admiral, so his specialty is launching air raids off of aircraft carriers. He is now going to be the head of central command as Abizade is forced out for policy differences with Bush. We can, we can get into that in a minute. The new director of uh, national intelligence, the new intelligence czar in this, this new function, right, that's only been there for two years, is a guy called McConnell, another Navy figure Uh, And his background is he has spent the last several years at Booz Allen Hamilton. Now, this is very ominous. Uh, I I have to say this rather carefully, but if you wanted to do an investigation of the events of September 11th, an indispensable component would be to go to Booz Allen Hamilton and demand to have the activities of all components of that corporation on or about September 11th accounted for. And that would be the line of questioning that one would have to pursue with McConnell if he were ever uh, brought before the Senate for confirmation hearings, which should happen fairly soon. Where were you on September 11th? What were you doing? And prove it. And I, I can't really go much farther than that. But the, the suspicions in this regard are are very, very large, right? That uh, as part of these events, there were private military firms, consulting firms uh, involved, let us say.
0: Now, Booz Allen Hamilton is a consulting firm. That's how I tend They're to... Th- also
1: a private military firm.
0: Oh, I they didn't know that. They have
1: capabilities that, 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 that go uh, in the same direction as DynCorp or Blackwater or any of those. So they, I would say they combine consulting with the violent side of things. They are a company that could coordinate a many-sided action. And they could do it conveniently outside of any government offices. Uh, in other words, they're a company where if you want to go in and see what they're doing, you need a search warrant. A, a government office is different, right? A government office, certain people have the right to walk right in, but not Booz Allen Hamilton. So I, w- I would regard the appointment of somebody from Booz Allen Hamilton as an extremely ominous sign, let us say, because it seems to indicate that people who had, uh, uh, hard to hard to phrase this, but a a a People who, who may know a great deal about September 11th, let's say, are somehow being raised up in the power hierarchy.
0: I'm speaking with author and historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Widening the War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, what about the other appointments or the um, musical chairs? Uh, the new Undersecretary of State is Negroponte, what do you think about that?
1: Well, there, I think there are two sides. Well, the superficial explanation is that Condoleezza Rice is a disaster. She's incompetent. Uh, she's a laughing stock. She's mocked by Chavez. She's mocked by uh, the Russians. Uh, the State Department is in a shambles. There's a recent column by uh, Robert Novak where he complains about how, how bad things are in the State Department, and there's no... Uh, uh, you know, s- thorough neocon fanatical leadership coming from her. Uh, she's been mocked by his big new Brzezinski. Her, her remarks about the new Middle East—that she thinks that the civil war in Iraq is somehow the birth pang of a new Middle East—this uh, is just a raving incompetence and, and and practically lunacy. So they've got to do. They've got to get some tough operative uh, to to back her up. Under normal circumstances, she would get the sack, but it's politically impossible to do that, because she has somehow escaped the opprobrium that that attached to Rumsfeld and and the rest of these people. She somehow seems to be still uh, presentable uh, in the domestic political front, so they want to leave her there, but they put in Negroponte. Now, Negroponte is going to do what? Remember, Negroponte, like Robert Gates, is a certified Iran-contra Felon, he is somebody who is engaged in uh, gun running, drug running, uh, death squads above all, right? Negroponte's specialty was death squads in Honduras. They put him as pro-consul in, in Baghdad. Death squads appear in Baghdad. It's, it's an amazing career that he's had. In this case, according to Wayne Madsen report, meaning leaks from the National Security Agency, Negroponte's job is to create an apparatus of contractors, private contractors, who are going to create uh... action group for the aggression against iran and again when i say aggression it means air attacks quite likely nuclear attacks with uh... bunker busting bombs um... primarily carried out from the air with selected uh, operations by special forces attempts to detach provinces. Remember that that Iran is is, uh, ethnically heterogeneous, right? There are Azeris, there are Pashtuns. Above all, there's a large group of Arabs along the coast of the Gulf, right? That's the so-called Ahvaz or Arabistan area. That's where all the oil is. That's what the British and the U.S. would like to detach. Uh, Anything up to the Zagros Mountains, if you look on your map, uh, could uh, uh, possibly be occupied uh, by U.S. forces using a, a local liberation group as a backup. At least this is what they think. I don't think they'll, they'll get that way uh, very far at all. And we can go into the military side. But if we put all this stuff together, it is a very, very um, critical uh, pattern. And at the same time, we've also got people in the Congress who are who are uh, openly talking about this. In, in Miss Rice's unfortunate appearance at the... Um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee she was told by the Republican Vornovich that she was a liar. She was told by um, by others uh, by, by Hegel of Nebraska that this was the worst foreign policy blunder since Vietnam. Feingold said it was the worst foreign policy blunder in the history of the United States Congre- uh, Senator Nelson. Democrat of Florida said, I have supported the war, but now I'm not going to support it because, again, you lied to me. So she was, she took uh, quite a beating indeed. Biden then pointed out to her that his opinion was, and he's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that you've got to get the approval of Congress if you want to attack Iran. And the overtone, therefore, is if you don't get the approval of Congress before attacking Iran, then this leads to a constitutional crisis and i think that is that is now where everything is pointing we've got the the threat of what is in fact the third world war we've got bush making these statements right he had an interview this past sunday where he said it's clear the congress will try to stop me but i've made my decision and we're going to go forward and when he says this i think you have to assume that he means not just this this minor tactical tinkering you know on the streets of baghdad or or other minor changes, but the big change, in other words, the wider war. The, the mentality of these people would seem to be that of a, uh, a hysterical flight forwards.
0: Now, in terms of the replacements that have been made by Bush, we've discussed the new director of intelligence retired Admiral Mike McConnell from Booz Allen Hamilton, right. and the new Undersecretary of State, Negroponte, who's right. preparing to widen the war. And we've also talked about uh, the new Director of Central Command, CENTCOM, Admiral William J. Fallon. Right. But now Bush has also replaced generals in Iraq. He has replaced, uh, what, General Casey and General Abizade. All let right,
1: right, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the actual military questions regarding, uh, regarding Iraq. Let me say, first of all, that the leading military advisor to Bush now is somebody with no military experience whatsoever. You have probably seen the smug, arrogant, uh, overfed face of Frederick Kagan on your television screen last uh, 10 days ago, Friday. He was the the leading personality in a telecast from the American Enterprise Institute, right? the infamous Temple of Doom, home of all the neocons, Pearl, the Dean, the rest of them. So Field Marshal Frederick Kagan, who has never heard a shot fired in anger, never smelled cordite, no no military background, uh, is the architect of the new plan. So he has turned to somebody who has absolutely no military experience. They do bring in General Keene, retired Army. Uh, This plan is called Choosing Victory, and it is uh, consumed with an obsession with the tactical situation in Baghdad. It goes into the neighborhoods, the Shiites, the Sunnis, the mixed neighborhoods. It shows you where the brigades and the regimental combat teams have to go, neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street, door by door, room by room, practically. Um, The um, choice of words here is very interesting. Uh, we have a very well-known speech by Hitler, November twenty third, 1939. So the war has started, right? the phony war at least, has has started in Poland, and Germany is theoretically at war with Britain and France, but in reality not. Hitler says in this famous speech, I am risking all this on a gamble, but I have to choose between victory or destruction. I choose victory. The title of the new strategy is Choosing Victory by Kagan And keen, and this will not be the first uh, Hitlerian parallel. Let us look now at the actual situation of the U.S. uh, forces. The U.S. forces, as people know, are concentrated in this Sunni triangle: these places—Fallujah, Ramadi, uh, Tikrit—to some extent, Bakuba. Uh, It's a a triangle that has one of its uh, apices uh, touching. Baghdad and then it goes north to Crete and then it goes out into Anbar province. You can look on the on the internet, there are various maps of this you can you can take a look at. That's the Sunni Triangle. Then there's Anbar province, which goes off to the uh, to the west, and then of course there's the city of Baghdad. Now right now the, the obsessive interest is the city of Baghdad. After that, some degree, the Anbar province, the the Sunni triangle seems to have receded, because I think they've they've actually given up on, on some of that. However, the question of victory or defeat is not going to be decided in these neighborhoods. It's going to be decided in the question of supply lines. Now, the supply lines for the U.S. forces in Iraq have to go through two gauntlets, potentially. The first is the Gulf from the Gulf of Oman, the Straits of Hormuz, and this Gulf, right? The Persians call it the Persian Gulf. The Arabs call it the Arabian Gulf. English-language maps sometimes just call it the Gulf, right? So there it is, the Gulf. Uh, They've got to get up there. Now, of course, if if you attack Iran, Iran possesses extremely formidable Russian Yakonsk cruise missiles that go at three times the speed of sound at... Uh, one meter off the water with huge warheads. They're designed to destroy aircraft carriers and or super tankers. Uh, there are silkworm missiles. There are Exocet missiles. There are mines. There are torpedoes. There are small craft. Uh, that entire stretch, the entire Gulf, becomes a gauntlet of fire for transport ships, bringing the sinews of war to the U.S. forces through the port of Kuwait. And remember, this means everything. Food. Water, the entire water ration has to be trucked in. Ammunition, medical supplies, everything else that is used has to come up the Persian Gulf to the port of Kuwait. Then it is loaded onto trucks, and it has to make a 400 to 450 or 500-mile journey up what is most of the way two roads on either side of the Euphrates. To get to Baghdad and then to branch out into Anbar and the uh, Sunni Triangle area. Now, there are two roads, so they're each 400 miles long. This amounts to 800 miles, 1,250 kilometers or so, of potential shooting gallery. Now, up to now, the attacks have not come. On the one side, because the Shiites of the lower Euphrates have not been mobilized as much as the Sunnis of the Sunni Triangle, but this could change. Uh, a lot of these people are loyal to Muqtada Sadr and the Mahdi army. The U.S. now seems to be determined to antagonize this group by killing some of Muqtada's friends, by attacking him, by threatening him, by driving him out of the government, and so forth. So anytime Muqtada decides, he can make these 800 miles of roads virtually impassable. The other question is the, uh, the Skiri, right, the, um, this guy, his eminence, Hakim, Bush's friend that he met at the White House. This is the the pro-Iranian Shiite group. Uh, They would not act against the U.S. unless you had an attack on Iran, in which case they would become a leading practitioner of such attacks. Now, just imagine this. You have convoys of 40 trucks, and it includes tanker trucks that are filled with gasoline. It's extremely vulnerable. It cannot be guarded. And it is vulnerable to teams of three or four or five people with rocket-propelled grenades and other means roadside bombs, improvised explosive devices, and so forth. Uh, It's estimated that it would be possible to bring that convoy traffic basically to a halt. You say, well, air power can, can stop these people from doing it. The problem is if you have three or four or five people hiding in a sand dune, there is no target for an airplane to attack. And again... You know, it's uh, the, there are sixty thousand people in the Mahdi Army, and if you string out ten or twenty or thirty thousand of those along these roads, again, it would be very hard for anything to get through. And this is basically what's happening. There is a kind of a slow strangulation going on. The most recent article is from the Christian Science Monitor of last week, and they say normally, uh, over the past six to twelve months, the norm was eight convoys per day of forty four zero trucks leaving Kuwait City. Baghdad, going up these roads. Now, according to the Christian Science Monitor, it's fewer than eight convoys a day with fewer than 40 trucks. Uh, In November, there was a spectacular incident when a group of armed men attacked a convoy and simply took 20 trucks, half of the trucks in the convoy, disappeared and were never found. And uh, they also took uh, hostage, I think, four Americans and one Austrian. These are now private contractors, mercenaries who were guarding it. That's the other question. Who guards these convoys, right? This, again, logistics is the, the uh, most critical point in, in warfare. There's a famous quotation from General Omar Bradley that it's the amateurs who talk about strategy. The professionals talk about logistics. So we, we've got people who are talking tactics, not even strategy, let alone uh, Let alone that. But now we've got to look at the logistics, and the logistics right now are extremely vulnerable. They are threatened in a way which is, which is absolutely um, chilling when you look at it. Who drives these trucks? Uh, these are people who are not military. They're not armed. They're not even um, trained in any way. They're basically Filipinos, uh, Turks, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis. They're they're poor guys who need a job who are willing to work until somebody kills them because they've got to support their families and avoid starvation back home. And then you've got groups like Crescent Security Services. And again, a a serious effort by Muqtada Sadr and the Mahdi army would tend to cut these supply lines. A serious effort by the Badr Brigade of the Skiri group, the pro-Iranians, would tend to cut these supply lines. You can even get down to how they would do it. They would create these hedgehogs, these uh, sort of defensive positions along the roads, across the roads, outside the bases, uh, and so forth.
0: I'm speaking with author and historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Widening the War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: The other, The other side of this is who is there to defend this? Well, the, the lower part, the Basra part, is the British zone, and then there's a little bit north is sort of the Nasiriyah-Najaf zone, which had been under Poland. And the word here is simply that they, they're, they're all either gone or they're leaving soon. The Spanish, uh, these were contingents between, say, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. The Spanish are gone, of course. The Ukrainians are gone The Dutch are gone. The Italians had 3,000. They're all gone as of December 2nd. Um, The Poles have maintained a small contingent. There are a few Japanese, but essentially, according to my calculations, it's been a net loss of about 12,000 international troops in the last 18 to 24 months. So what Bush is doing barely makes up for that. And now we have then... The announcement from Gordon Brown, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, from Des Brown, the British Defense Secretary, and uh, Margaret Beckett, the Foreign Secretary, that the British will take uh, 3,000-plus, I guess it is, out of Basra, leaving about 4,000 British at the very bottom of the lower Euphrates. So essentially, you will have a situation where the U.S. has nobody there. You've got some private security firms running around. But the bulk of these international forces will be gone, minus 16,000 again. And that basically nullifies anything that Bush would be sending in. Now, there's a a certain amount of agitation uh, going on around this encirclement theme. A guy that I know, Robert Steele, he's the head of um, open source intelligence, OSS.net, or org, one or the other. He is somebody with a lot of intelligence background. You can look at his resume. I, he's worked for various military services. Uh, we have co-authored a statement that has been faxed to Congress calling attention to the fact of this encirclement. And the message simply is, save these forces. There is no reason why they should be surrounded, have their gasoline, food, and medical supplies cut off, this would set them up for a route. It simply means that you cannot operate these. The U.S. forces are extremely dependent on logistical services. They've got to have, you know, these, these tanks require gasoline. An Abrams tank gets probably half a mile per gallon of gasoline. The, the amounts of, of, of supplies consumed are just enormous. Uh, if the supply lines are cut, the situation of the forces becomes critical. They'd have to have uh, uh, a rout. They'd have to, you know, storm out of there. Some of them could be airlifted out, but this would be something worse than Saigon in 1975 from the point of view of the U.S. forces, because at least in 1975, most U.S. forces, almost all of them, were already gone. But in this case, they would not be gone. This would be something like the retreat from the Chosun Reservoir in, uh, in the Korean War or something. It would be... Uh, something with tens of thousands of casualties in a very, very short period of time.
0: Webster, I'd like to uh, cite for our listeners that uh, Christian Science Monitor article that you mentioned. It's called A Tougher Journey to Supply Baghdad, and that's by Raymond Barrett, and that was in the Christian Science Monitor January 8th issue, in case anyone wants to look that up. Now. Right. Webster, what what about Baghdad itself?
1: And now maybe we can just do a, a comparison. I think this is this is uh, tremendously overrated. In other words, this this is simply the obsession that is going on. And maybe I, if, if I do my comparison, I think this will it cast light on why are we hearing everything about Baghdad now? It used to be the Sunni Triangle or or other things. Let us compare now. We have Paul Craig Roberts and others saying, you know, Bush equals Hitler. And I'm afraid this is well-founded. And I think the more detail we can give to the comparison, the more people will see that this actually holds up. I think one of the problems of our educational system is that they don't teach you very much detail about, about somebody like uh, Hitler and what he actually stood for and what he, what he did. Let's go back to the Nazi attack on the Soviet Union. June twenty second, nineteen forty one, and then jump ahead to the summer of nineteen forty two, when this German blitzkrieg attack was beginning to run out of steam, right? And the Soviets continued to resist with the heroism that that people uh, maybe know about. In the in the case of Bush, we have an aggressor who has bogged down, an invader, an imperialist occupier who has bogged down. Now, by the end of two thousand and six, beginning of two thousand and seven, it's clear that the situation is is very, very grim. Similarly for Hitler, already in the summer of 1942, when he's beginning to get to the end of the energy of the German forces. At that point, what did Hitler do? He became obsessed with the city of Stalingrad. He began to impart to Stalingrad this mystical significance, that it was symbolic. It was the embodiment of his adversary, Stalin, right, the dictator of the Soviet Union and the the leader of world communism. The obsession, therefore, grows, right? There's a target, there's a a kind of an apocalyptic city that if you can reach it, then that's going to be absolutely decisive. In the case of Bush, it's now obviously Baghdad. With the help of Kagan and the people at the American Enterprise Institute and the media, We've now got this line, which is coming from everywhere. Baghdad is the key. Now, they, they already started with this back in July of 06. They tried an operation in Baghdad. By October, they announced it had failed. And now Kagan and the rest of these bitter enders, who have nothing to offer but war, war, and more war, now say, well, the problem is you didn't go into Baghdad enough. Just to step back for a second. If you look at the U.S. military, the advantage they do have is mobility and firepower, things like these these tanks. Right. Look, look at how they did the attack on Iraq in the first place. One of the maxims is you don't want to send tanks into a city. You don't want to send military forces into a city of six million. I could cite you, you know, the what the Germans were going to do with Paris in in 1914 and what the U.S. did vis-a-vis Paris in 1944. You don't want to go into big cities. You want to avoid them. But in this case, you've got counterinsurgency, so now they've got to go in, and you're getting down now to, again, neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street, house by house, room by room. This is exactly what, what went on in the mind of Hitler. In other words, this is an obsession. This is not military science. Now, Obviously, when, when, when Bush does this, he runs into resistance. Abizade, the theater commander, central command, and Casey, who is the tactical commander for the ground forces in Iraq, both say no, don't do it. And he fires them. They're both gone. They're you know, on their way out, covered up by various stories about retirement or spending more time with one's family. What did Hitler do when he began to, to, to create this obsession with Stalingrad? Uh, he fires the head of the entire German army at the end of 1941, von Brauchitsch. Then in September of 1942, as the obsession is growing and the German forces are now fighting in Stalingrad, he fires the head of the German general staff, Halder, Franz Halder. In the meantime, he's fired the head of an army group, von Rundstedt. These are famous generals, very capable, professional people. And Hitler's commentary is very interesting. He says, well, anybody could give a little operational leadership, but what I require is the fanatical devotion to the ideal of national socialism. And I take it, the, the, the crime of Abizade and Casey, just like the crime of Shinseki, before them, is that they were insufficiently fanatical when it came to devotion to the neocon ideal of endless warfare and endless sacrifice. So with this, Bush purges the officer corps and brings in a bunch of psychophants. In the case of Hitler, it was the infamous Keitel, like right? Wilhelm Keitel, uh, was the symbol. He was the military yes man that Hitler brought in who would simply approve anything that Hitler wanted. He was more like Hitler's butler than the head of the, of the German military. Now, if we look at Stalingrad, you'll see you have this Sixth Army, right? The big German force that got into Stalingrad under, under uh, General von Paulus is the German Sixth Army. It's quite strong. It's not going to be defeated directly in the same way that the, the Iraqi resistance forces are not going to go toe-to-toe with the U.S. tanks and airplanes and win in that sense. No. The problem is, however, the flanks. Every force, no matter how big it is, ends somewhere, and that means it has a flank. So who did the Germans put in? Well, they had not enough forces, the huge expanses, right? The, uh, the steps of, of, of uh, European Russia. So they put some Romanians some Hungarians, and some Italians. Now, a lot of these are, are you know, brave, dedicated people, but they're not enough of them, they're not well-equipped, and they don't have the f- sufficient fanatical devotion to the, to the ideal. And this is where the Soviets are able to punch through and surround Stalingrad. Now, if we go, come back to the present, we've just seen it. The flank, or the, the supply line of the U.S., is now in the hands of Filipinos, Turks, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, the drivers the people who have got to drive those convoys, plus some private contractors, plus Crescent Security Services, DynCorp, uh, Blackwater, and the rest of them. And they're doing the critical role of logistics, and that's, that shows you what the problem is when you privatize this stuff. You cannot privatize logistics because, as Napoleon says, the army travels on its stomach, and this is the stomach, and this stomach is now very vulnerable. Now, as a result of all this, what we see in both Bush and Hitler is simply the retreat into a dream world. It's a world of intuition, of fantasy, of symbolism, tremendous personal recriminations. Uh, I mean, someday we'll read, you know, today you can read the memoirs of these German generals about Hitler chewing the carpet and, and foaming at the mouth and things like this. Someday I'm sure we'll read... Similar accounts in memoirs about the tantrums that Bush is having in the White House or how they, maybe how they administered various kinds of psychopharmaca to keep him under control. Right? Is he drinking again? Is he grabbing for the bottle? Uh, what's he doing? Is he beating his wife? All, all kinds of, of stories of this sort. But generally speaking, the retreat into the dream world, I think, is absolutely there. And then when you get to the critical moment, because I think which was pretty much where we are now, Abizade and Casey have obviously told him, don't surge, don't escalate this war. And a lot of people, I think, in the U.S. military security establishment have said, it's time to retreat. The, The consensus of the Congress is, I think, at least almost the majority say, it's time to retreat. It's time to begin retreating. And he refuses this. Similarly, in the case of of Stalingrad, once the ring had been closed around Stalingrad, the commander inside the pocket, von Paulus, wanted to break out, and a a group of other German generals wanted to break out and say, it's time to leave Stalingrad, get out of there, come back west, rejoin the rest of the German forces. And again, Hitler chewed the carpet, foamed at the mouth, and said, no, there will be no retreat, not one inch, not one step, and he also did this interesting move of promoting von Paulus to field marshal, the tradition being that a German field marshal could never surrender, had to die or commit suicide or, or something. And von Paulus didn't do that. He, he took steps then at the end of January, after his men had frozen and, and starved and, and died in huge numbers, uh, he surrendered. But this is the kind of thing we're looking for. In other words, the Battle of Annihilation, you know, you can look at it in military history, Cannae, Hannibal defeats the Romans, or uh, it's also very often the fate of imperialist armies, the British in Afghanistan in the 1840s, uh, the British with General Gordon at Khartoum in the 1880s, the Italians at Adawa, Ethiopia in the 1880s. The French at uh, DNB and Fou in the 1950s, and of course the British with General Townsend at Kut in uh, on the Tigris this time in the First World War. Right when when Iraq was part of the Ottoman Empire, Turkish Empire, the British attacked up the uh, Tigris-Euphrates from from Basra, and they got almost to Baghdad. Then they had to retreat to Kut, and that's where they were surrounded, and their army was annihilated. It never came back. It it was uh, surrendered and. A lot of these people died then as, as prisoners of war, 1915 to 1916. So this is the relevant military history, and I think a lot of this stuff is more real than the commentaries that, that we're, uh, we're hearing.
0: I'm speaking with author and historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Widening the War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: The other question... I think is relevant is the question of the broken army. Uh, we've heard now in December from General schoolmaker the chairman, uh, the the chief of the Army Staff, as well as General Powell, right, might be tired, former Secretary of State, that the U.S. Army is now broken, and I think you have to take this very, very seriously uh, today or yesterday, Tuesday. Um, there is a petition by a 1,000 active-duty U.S. military, the petition of redress, which says we're asking the Congress to put an end to the Iraq War. That's an extraordinary step. It's perfectly legal. It's all provided for in regulations. It's there's not, not insubordination. subordination. They're following orders. There's no treason. It's perfectly within everybody's rights, uh, c- quite contrary to what these, these neocon radio commentators say. They're all on active duty, Marines, Army, all the services. You have to take that seriously. Uh, when you say a broken army, um, in military history, you might go back to the year of the breaking of armies, 1917, is the year when the, you know, the Russian army collapses, but also the French army. Let's look at the French army in 1917. A broken army goes something like this. General Nivelle the new French commander, tells the French army, we're going to make a new frontal attack at a place called the Chemin des Dames in the spring of 1917, and you're going to, we're going to have such a tremendous artillery barrage that you can simply walk all the way to Berlin. And, of course, when they, when they carry this out, there are thousands of machine guns, and there are forty to 50,000 casualties in the first 12 hours. And General Nivelle says, oh, no, we're going to continue to make this attack. And pretty soon, a 100 divisions of the French army have mutinied Now, mutiny is the thing that you might expect from a broken force. Uh, If you continue on this route, right, Kagan and the people at the American Enterprise Institute don't seem to realize that when you push people beyond the breaking point for no reason, uh, then uh, the organization begins to fall apart. Uh, There is a, a rumor that appeared in one of the Arab papers that when Secretary of Defense Gates went to Iraq in the first week of January, one of the things he had to deal with was a mutiny by a battalion of Marines in Anbar province, who were told to do something ridiculous, right, maybe by a neocon officer, and they refused to do it. Now, there's no confirmation, and it's only from a rather obscure Arab newspaper, but you have to think about all this. Now, therefore, the obvious, the military course is the withdrawal of the U.S. forces from Iraq must begin immediately. Um, In order to avoid this very, very critical threat, people should be reassured. One of the reasons Iraqi society is so chaotic is that an occupation by a foreign imperialist invading colonialist force leads to a violent resistance. And if you remove the foreign occupation, the resistance subsides and normal social conditions will tend to return. Uh, the notion of al-Qaeda in Iraq, again, is an absolute fantastic invention of U.S. propaganda. That guy, Zarqawi, was an asset of U.S. military intelligence, and he had it written all over him. And his game was killing Iraqis. It was uh, so evident, right? He was not a resistance force. He went around killing other, other Iraqis and had nothing to do with any national resistance of, of Iraq. So the general lesson for the Middle East is that imperialism is over. The U.S. is defeated in Iraq. The British are defeated in Afghanistan. The Israelis were defeated in Lebanon by Hezbollah this past summer. The old imperialism post-1945 is finished, and people have got to realize this. The other question, especially for the Democrats, because we now have uh, Mrs. Clinton saying, let's take the forces out of Iraq and send them to Afghanistan. Let's do nothing of the kind. Let us acknowledge that the global war on terrorism is a fraud, the U.S. has backed Chechen terrorism against Russia. They have backed uh, the PKK, Turkish terrorists, to make raids into Iran. They have backed the MEK, uh, an Iranian terror group, making raids into Iran. They have also backed the Akhvaz, or Arabistan Liberation Front, making attacks in that coastal area, the oil area of uh, of Iran. I call them the BP Liberation Front, British Petroleum, who used to own all this stuff. Uh, the U.S. is up to its neck in backing terrorism. There is no global war on terrorism. It's all a fraud, and the biggest fraud is the 9/11 story, which is the basis of all this stuff. And a very healthy sign in the Democratic Party would be anybody willing to come forward and saying, not only do I think the the Iraq War is a fraud, the Afghan War is a fraud. And let me just say in parenthesis, the whole story of encirclement that we've just gone through for Iraq is very much on the agenda in Afghanistan. It's just hard to know when. But, you know, the supplies have to go up across that Khyber Pass into uh, Afghanistan. This is uh, an invitation for that line to be cut. So those forces should also go home. Uh, All of these societies will be much more peaceful and placid if foreign occupiers get out. I guess that would be my my arguing point. Let's have the repatriation of all foreign occupiers in these critical areas, and let us therefore remove this bone of contention. It would obviously also be a good thing to have a comprehensive Middle East peace conference that would deal with everything, the reconstruction of Iraq, the reconstruction of Lebanon, the Iranian nuclear forces, if you want, but then also the Israeli nuclear forces, uh, as well as all the other outstanding issues, everything on the table. And do that with the notion that the main problem of the Middle East is obviously poverty, backwardness, uh, lack of economic development, economic stagnation. You would need a Marshall Plan for the region from which all states, including Israel, absolutely would benefit uh, and give people a common interest if they don 't see one now, then create one, and let it, let it be real and the u s under, under any sane leadership, would take the lead you 'd obviously want to work closely with Russia, closely with all the regional powers uh, and, and everybody in the u n security council and that would begin to make sense in other words I think that, that the, the ultimate point is it is time to turn away from imperialism and colonialism. These are dead categories of world history. No population in today's world is willing to accept foreign occupation over any length of time, and a violent resistance is always inevitable. So let us just drop this entire category. Um, The Baker-Hamilton Commission, let me just say a word about them. They are not the right alternative. Uh, The Baker-Hamilton alternative is essentially to say, well, the U.S., the British, and the Israelis cannot wage war on the entire world all at the same time. can't be done. We're too weak. So, therefore, what we want to have, as Baker put it, is let's have, uh, let's peel the Syrians away from the Iranians and convert the Syrians into an asset of the U.S. And Baker says, yeah, I, I recruited the Syrians to attack Iraq in the first Gulf War, and I could do it again. Let me... Let me do it. It's obviously behind this is the idea of having a Sunni and or Arab alliance, something like Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, to fight against Iran, Hezbollah, and, uh, and the Shiites of Iraq and have a regional war on that basis. In other words, recruit local proxies, local stooges, local uh, assets, and play them against the others and try to dominate the region from above in the midst of a regional war that's what that's of course what they did all during the eighties right they had played iraq against iran and could then balance the region based on the fact that these two were both tied up if you want to see the reality of the baker hamilton commission it is the attack by ethiopia against somalia there's an example right? the u.s. is too weak to attack somalia oh, the u.s. doesn't want to repeat that black hawk down that was nothing you want to have again, so don't don't go yourself, send the Ethiopians as your proxy, and you can uh, you can essentially occupy Somalia on a very economical basis with just a few airstrikes, which unfortunately largely kill civilians and uh, and and uh, cattle and farmers. So I think that that would be the rundown of, of the current time. So we are now on the brink of what amounts to World War three. It might not be World War three all at once. But an attack on Iran and or Syria, and it's most likely going to be and Syria, with the Israelis joining in, this would be a regional conflagration and it would simply be a short slide into something that would look more and more like World War III. So people have to uh, have to resist.
0: Well, now, what to do? People always say, you've outlined the problem, but what can we do? What can people possibly do to head off or, at the very least, react to an escalation or a widening of the war in the Middle East to Iran, to Syria?
1: What do you do about this? Well, there are all sorts of things to do. But since we've just had uh, Martin Luther King Day, maybe we can mention the last issue that Martin Luther King was working on was, of course, the Memphis... Garbage men strike, and what he was trying to do was to create a a regional general strike in that part of Tennessee as strike support for the strike of these of these garbage men, and that I think is what we have to look at today. Uh, When terrorism was unleashed in Madrid, Spain, in the spring of two thousand and four, and the neo fascist Aznar tried to declare martial law and make himself permanent dictator he had to reckon with the fact that one-third of the Spanish population had gone into the streets to condemn him and his entire demagogy of terrorism. Uh, And if we could ever get anything like that in the United States, I think that would be the fulfillment of Martin Luther King's dream. And this is what we've got to get ready for now, because if anybody comes and says, there's going to be a wider war, and by the way, we're having martial law and calling off elections, the only adequate response is a nationwide general strike. And, of course, in San Francisco, you've already had one, right? Back in the mid-1930s, there was a quite respectable regional general strike, and uh, we would have to do that then on a national and even on an international scale.
0: A general strike as a response to an escalating war and or a possible attack on Iran.
1: Yes, and again, the idea that, you know, some kind of martial law or limitation of civil liberties, postponement of elections might be combined with that. But when you get policies of this sort, you've got to encourage the Congress to proceed on the paths of impeachment and uh, and rescinding the declaration of war and otherwise cutting off the financial support. And the best way to do that is an open-ended general strike. Sounds like a utopia. Uh, because it hasn 't been done in so long, but the the, uh, the option is there. It was done in Spain, what just two or three years ago it was it is the, the the last project that that consumed the the attention of Martin Luther King. You can go back to other other cases and other types of history It's it 's the only method of mass struggle that is at all adequate to those sorts of situations and and people should at least begin to talk about it even even if it 's not feasible. In the coming months, uh, the more people become acquainted with the idea, the more likelihood that it that it might occur.
0: Webster Tarpley, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a
0: man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with author and historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Widening the War. Webster Tarpley is an author, historian, investigative journalist, and lecturer. Tarpley is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Surviving the Cataclysm, a Study of the World Financial Crisis, and Against Oligarchy, a Collection of Essays and Speeches from the Years 1970 to 1996. In 1992, he co-authored George Bush, the Unauthorized Biography, which still stands as the only comprehensive and critical account of the former president and his family network. Posted for free on the internet since October 1996 at www.tarpley.net, this study has become an underground classic. His books are available at amazon.com. Webster Tarpley's program, World Crisis Radio, can be heard every Saturday on the internet at www.rbnlive.com that's r b n l i v e . c o m visit his website at www.tarpley.net email him at tarpley@tarpley.net at Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaromako. to leave comments or order copies of the show call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what i'm saying now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all you understand what i'm saying this is a call for all you sleeping souls wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout a sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what just yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me?